Hey, Nathan. Hey, Will. Welcome back to the Design Games Podcast. It's good to see you. Always a pleasure. Why am I talking like this? Is it because I'm on the radio? My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. Say, Nathan, what are we talking about on the show this time? This time on the Design Games Podcast, we're talking about recent games that we've played that have influenced us in thinking about jamming specifically. The last 10 years, I mean, it's always been true, but there have been game by game, I feel like more new efforts in a very good way, in a very good sense. I'm glad this is true, but more new efforts towards exploring, pinning down, unpinning and repinning how to define GMing game by game as opposed to genre by genre mm-hmm. or ways that can be that are, they can be peeled off the game and reapplied in different ways before we explore how we get to that point talk a little bit about how we got to that point which is to say what are some games that we've learned stuff from or have modeled with or have that we that we particularly have, have jumped out of sort of methods I should say more so than the games themselves mm-hmm. some of the current state of the art mm-hmm. in how this is done and then that so that we so that you and I have the same framework and that the listeners have share some of that framework with us. Sure. So on the last episode, uh, we definitely talked about for me, uh, we talked about inspectors and we talked about Polaris. Having said those two titles, uh, did what did you have in mind for you that's kind of maybe a little more current or a little more impactful for uh, the current conversation? Certainly in terms of current, there's not just not apocalypse world per se, as much as, to me, what's interesting is the whole comparison of the various Powered by the Apocalypse games mm-hmm. and the agendas and principles that vary from game to game. Mm-hmm. So one of the kind of talking points about Apocalypse World and then Descendants is how Vincent kind of took this bundle of here's what a good GM does in this type of game. And instead of saying, it's up to you to figure out how to be a good GM, saying, here's how I think a good GM works, right? Like, that's what the agenda agendas and principles are about, like, Right. For the value of for Apocalypse World when you're to have an effective, interesting, exciting play to find out what happens game, it has always kind of been you celebrate the characters. You look through crosshairs. Yeah, 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 you yeah, you look through crosshairs at NPCs. You know, you build fronts as as he says and, and advance them when, you know, it makes sense to do so. All of those things. So there is a real value to breaking that down and saying, hey, you don't need to just learn this through experience. Running, you know, a bunch of World of Darkness, running a bunch of Shadowrun, running a bunch of whatever. And be like, oh, here's how I have these really effective games. Mm-hmm. He's broken it down for him and for his game. And then each of the Inheritor games or other Powered by the Apocalypse versions has to recast that into their own framework. And as may or may not be whatever common knowledge at this point but is that i had i had especially and i have still some lingering issues with mm-hmm. how it gets broken out but not that it gets broken out right right and so this is an area where ironically to me the difference between design in in play and prose the teaching of the players mm-hmm. can overlap to varying degrees one of part of my issue is that i think that they don't overlap in apocalypse world as much as people think that think that it does mm-hmm. Not Vincent necessarily. I think Vincent's very clear about it. But I feel like, for example, there's a lot of stuff in Apocalypse World that we would call advice if we didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Advice is, is often jargon I hear for game master instruction that I think is bullshit. Right. Which then we call it advice. 
right? But when but when it feels essential, we don't call it advice; we call it essential. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that is still GM by GM specific, which is to say that I think there there are agendas or principles mm-hmm. for for when I run Apocalypse World that are missing from that list. Mm-hmm. But things that I do, like for example, I drill down into Bar Fourth Apocalyptica. And yeah. I have specific bullet points, like three of them that I used for myself and I couldn't find them. I had them right now that I used to help me do that. And mm-hmm. they were about like, you know, the five senses, t- making the familiar strange, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff in a way that I feel like Bar Fourth Apocalyptica only works if you're already Vincent or sure. if you're already like as experienced in this and you're already in this mm-hmm. mode, you've soaked up the book and stuff. Well, like I am coming from my play background. I like I don't make fronts when I run Apocalypse World right. the way that that you're kind of instructed to in the book. I do all the, you know, ask a bunch of questions, get a bunch of kind of characters generated out of the players' um, mm-hmm. interests. And then I do like a big relationship map and make sure that all those characters have motivations that involve the player characters. Right. And then just go from there. So the the point of the front, I think, is still achieved in what I do because it's still creating um, this moving uh, this moving kind of threat and these sets of overlapping and non-complementary interests that you know that, that right. the players get caught up in and an active and reactive stuff. world that is not prescribed but is ready right right yeah. all that stuff it's all it's all ready to be destabilized like all that stuff but because of the tools i'm comfortable using as a gm i i do that with a relationship map mm-hmm. and kind of just roll with it as opposed to doing the formal here's the scarcity that this front targets and here are the threats that are part of the front and right here are the characters that are part of the threat and like all that stuff, which is very, very useful for people who who you know use it and, and find the value in it. And if you've never thought about that before, or it's a, a, a or it's a mode that's unfamiliar to you, it's a great tool. Right. It gives you an exercise. Or, I mean, obviously, the exercise even sounds, mm. uh, I think, less relevant than it is. But it gives you a method, yeah. like you say, to arrive at this place of being of, of being active and reactive at the same time and mm. listening, but also having NPCs with, with, with their but own having agendas. having an agenda, yeah. Yeah, without necessarily mm. requiring you to have attempted... Like, the issue that I, that I heard a lot with the World of Darkness stuff, which I think is completely legit, is that it relies on you having an understanding of other storytelling media sometimes to get its metaphors, mm-hmm. to, to, to already be confident or competent and stuff in a way that Apocalypse World doesn't assume that you've played Vampire necessarily, doesn't assume that you've played D&D necessarily. Mm. Um, it does assume that you've seen a movie, but not necessarily this or that movie. Mm. Um, there's, you know, there's certain notions about being a fan of the characters or them being stars and stuff that makes that connects better if you've you know yeah. seen television or a movie or whatever. But so that it's deeply, or I should say immediately accessible mm. in a way that's really fruitful. But for example, part of what, what irked me was the fact that it, it gives all this emphasis about so uh, uh, this is how you prepare, this is how you grow out of the characters, and this is how you do the fronts, and this is how you create this living world that, that will develop and act as you go. Mm-hmm. And then it specifically says, do not pre-plan a story I am not fucking around. Mm-hmm. Which to me, and this is the thing, is that that hit me in a spot that was one, it doesn't tell me what pre-plan a story means, which is to say, in other words, fronts break that rule as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. It tells me not to do it, but but Vincent is allowed to do it. I pick on Vincent only because he's, I mean, in this case, that's how I took that writing, which is because that's how I pre-plan a story. Is I go, if I have NPCs who want one thing mm-hmm. and players who want another thing, a story will occur. Right. Right. But he's alluding to a thing that he doesn't define, that he assumes we will know what pre-plan right. a story means yeah. from other games. Right. And that irked the heck out of me. Yeah, that's that's assuming, a, yeah, a, for lack of a better term, the railroaded scenario right. right where you're like oh well this then this yeah. then this then this yeah right. like it well if the pcs go to this town 
then they're going to run into the bad guy there. But if they go to the mines, well, the bad guy will be in the mines because no matter what they do, they're going to have to fight this bad guy. Right. Right. That's counter to the play to find, play out, what to find out what happens. But if you're already, I think, I think I, I think a lot of people have this reaction where it's like, Vincent, what are you talking about? I already do this. Why is this so strident? Right. Right. Like this is, this is just how you play a fun game. Why are you yelling at me? <laughs> right. It's like, but that's, right. You know, that's the thing about common knowledge is it's not common necessarily. Um, and and it was that that combination of do this, but don't do this. Don't don't sure. Don't get to this destination the same in a different way than I do, mm-hmm. where it felt like it was prescribing one mode and then forbidding all other modes, which mm-hmm. is not what it's doing. Right, because the game, first of all, holds up to lots of different. It can be bent and stressed and mutilated, and yeah. and remixed and revised and hacked and drifted mm-hmm. in lots of fruitful and positive ways. Yeah. And the game knows that it has a whole chapter on it. Yeah, but it's 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 unclear. I felt like in some ways what it is and isn't prescribing, and that's one. And I bring this up only because I, I don't think that that was a mistake in the in the book, mm-hmm. as much as it was an incompatibility with me as right. one of many many readers. Well, and that's one of the things is when you're putting your game together, you need to acknowledge. Acknowledge, A, that you're never going to perfectly communicate to everyone. Exactly. Right? That, so that's just... And that's just the, the human world we live in. Right. Um, but also that, you know, you're probably designing in a certain tradition or in a certain family of games or in reaction to a certain family of right. games. And being upfront and specific about what you're inheriting and what you're reacting to may make it easier for people to, to pick up what you're putting down. And, and no matter what you do, no matter whatever year your game comes out, that's the year it came out, right? Yeah. Like you can't make it come out five years earlier. Right. So you can be in concert in mm-hmm. conversation with games prior to that right. in a lot of fruitful and, and useful ways, but you kind of can't converse with the games that come after you. <laughs> right. right. One of the statements that fascinated me, for example, on Apocalypse World is where uh, Vincent specifically states, if you do this, you are no longer playing Apocalypse World, mm-hmm. which still to this day, it irks me a little bit only in the sense that I wish that statement had come in a way that said, do you mean mechanically or in genre or in the bounds of the scope of, I mean, there's so many ways to go off the, off the property in a way. Sure. But what, when the statement is essentially saying, I haven't, I, I think uh, I read it as I haven't tested what happens. I haven't tested for hours and hours and hours. What happens if you do it this way? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're in the wilderness then. Yeah. You are no longer playing this, mm-hmm. but it can also be read. And I've heard, I've, I've been told by people who read it this way. And I read, I've, I have waffled on this. Mm-hmm. As to whether or not what it means is you are playing wrong. Hmm. And that's because the context of the game, again, is the game came out in a world where there are internet arguments and game forums. Sure. And, and the reason that's important to me is because there are, I know there are players for whom if you don't play it the way that Vincent wanted it to be played, that is, then you are making a mistake. Mm-hmm. Which is, I, which Vincent would never say that. That's not, I don't think, what Vincent's approach would be. Yeah. Right? As Vincent isn't saying, my way or the highway. But, and to me, that warranty metaphor was super valuable. Um, and that's part of the explicit statement of, because our, all, all RPGs and story games are so malleable and so mutable and porous, it's really helpful, I think, to if when you know from your own playtesting and design when somebody is about to step into the wilderness or is about to leave yeah. the county mm-hmm. to let them know, uh, beyond there may be monsters I don't know. Right. And then also, be I think, for part of the long-term health of, health of a game is, is a community, including the designer, and and I think the apocalypse world, the power by the apocalypse community, has actually done this really well. Is being ready to come back when people come back and say, "I went off in this direction mm-hmm. and I found a beautiful spring." I went, yeah, I went like crisp I, water and <laughs> I went to the mountaintop and look what I brought back. Yeah, yeah. people are 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 very are more often than not very happy yeah. to say 
that's cool. There's all <laughs> kinds of great territory to explore. I believe GMing, as I've said, I say this all over the place. I believe GMing is a skill, which means you can you can improve, but it also as a skill means you can get rusty, right? Which is to say that you can fall into troughs, you can fall into treads where you just do the same stuff all you know over and over again. I know I have, I catch myself all the time. I have three or four or ten or whatever it is, but this, the kind of this 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 list of the ways that I indicate that a monster or, a, or an NPC has been killed, mm-hmm. and I wish I had more of them. And sometimes I do, but that I pick one up and I leave one, and then I can only keep five or six of them in my head at a time. So if more than five or six people get killed in a D&D session, it's likely that one of them will drop like, his, like a marionette with his strings cut because I know I use that line too much. <laughs> um, but that's just an example of stuff that we do that when a game comes in and challenges us to do it differently, right. how it challenges us is not necessarily as important, it depends on the game, but is important just as how it is supposed to be done for this game is important. Which doesn't mean surrender to only whatever pre-existing market segment somebody has told you exists to speak to that market segment that you have to that you that you can only speak to whatever paranoia fans or OSR fans or whatever to get it to get to this point. Mm. But it does mean that there are a lot of GMs for whom because RPGs I think are their own medium in my opinion the method by which they have achieved and deployed their voice as a GM some of it is intentionally hard to shake which is to say but this is the way I do it and it works for me. And some of it is hard, is 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 reflexively hard to shake. Where you're like, I want, I want to play Night Witches, or I want to play Primetime Adventures, or whatever, or I want to play Fiasco exactly the way that the book says to do it. Mm-hmm. But if you're not careful, you will just kind of accidentally slip into an old habit. Right. Um, so one of the things that I think that it's important for a game to do in these procedures, nuts and bolts, is to be ex- explicit in the sense that let me tell you what's worked for me. I know the game works when you follow these procedures. That's what the agendas and principles do mm-hmm. but then also the way that the hard moves and the soft moves interact which is to say that if you do them the way when and at the intensity honoring the two lists as being two separate lists hard moves and soft moves mm-hmm. and do them only when the game says you can do them which is mechanical even though it is very it, there's a judgment light. call involved there's a judgment call but it's not just a judgment call right yeah. but it, that that makes parts of it implicit which is mm-hmm. to say i don't have to stop and i'm not necessarily have to stop and question the designer I stop and question which list do I get to go off of, which of these five things do I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I might react more from the fiction than I might from, say, the, 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 the meta narrative of where this game fits in the larger conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think being both explicit and then backing it up with mechanics that help or procedures or mechanisms that help the GM even accidentally do what the game is good at. Right. Both of those, I think, are really strong checks and I, I wouldn't just say goals they're what things that i do in a design to make sure not like i have to have three explicit statements and one implicit right. as much as i do and i and i check and make sure that i haven't left one or the other out that they're right. agreeing with each other well i think in terms of stealing good technology um the the language of uh agendas and principles yeah. is something that i've started using not necessarily to explicitly say okay in this game right your agenda is this but just being just having even when i'm when i'm starting design just making basically a mission statement and mm-hmm. saying like in this game this player their agenda is to you know the the player's agenda is to do this yes. the gm's agenda is to do this here are a couple you know some some principles or just some methods or whatever right and maybe it's one maybe it's three but i found both in crystallizing for myself what what the difference between those player roles are mm-hmm. if it's the, the character the player character or the gm or whatever uh writing out like here is their agenda and here's how they're different is one way to start making those decisions who is the gm what do they do why do they do it or if they're very similar then maybe you're in the territory of maybe this doesn't need a gm maybe all the players have the same agenda right and it is this so that can be a really powerful tool 
to crystallize your own thoughts on the matter. Even I think if, to me, the uh, agenda and principle circles a a really fruitful space that divides really handsomely into agendas and principles in the whole part of the apocalypse world. Mm-hmm. And individual games, even if you honor the same divide, can use different names for them or whatever. Yeah. But also there are different ways to cut that pie depending on your game, mm-hmm. right? Which is obviously how many GMs well, you, you have. And, and you like can that. have a different, you know, maybe in, in <clears throat> phase one, here's your agenda. In right. phase two, here's your agenda. Or something like that. You can use it as a structuring tool for different parts of the game, how they interact, all that kind of stuff. Right. And I'd argue when you put together a game text, being very explicit about mm-hmm. who has what agenda, That's why a, they're trying to get what they want, yeah. can be really helpful for people to understand where you're coming from. Uh, in the manuscript for Dark, I divided it so that, because I was troubled by the lack of player agendas in a lot of post-apocalypse, post-apocalypse world games mm-hmm. that don't necessarily, because Apocalypse World, I think, does it implicitly and explicitly, but that if you if you get the setting which is because it's also molten you don't you don't nail it down to you play mm-hmm. but if you get the playbooks and stuff there's picking a playbook is a certain signing off on a particular kind of agenda right but not but it's not totally explicit and again like dark where everybody all the characters they're unified by the fact that they adopt a certain style of play stealth is a mode of play which I don't have a lot of previous examples to fall on mm-hmm. Uh, I set out to make both the players' agendas and the characters' agendas explicit, mm-hmm. um, and I do it to show how much they overlap, and to show that the characters or the players' agenda is more adaptable than the characters. Mm-hmm. Which is to say that if you come to this game wanting to fight through a, a level, uh, a mission, or a room, or whatever it is, you may be failed. The game may let you down. It's not designed to do that. Um, and so uh, to me, it was a matter of not just the bullet points, but that there's literally, because I feel like there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of genre that I have to integrate into the, into this mm. medium for it. There's, there are multiple little miniature essays about why, what, first of all, what is, what do we mean when we say be sneaky? And second of all, why, I'm not just saying that because I think it's cool. I'm saying it because the game, that's, the game will, you might get bored out of your mind if you don't do it that way in this <laughs> game. Um, or you might just die and have, I have to start over, whatever mm. it is. But also... Um, I'm I'm opening up as much as I can under the hood to say this mechanic works this way. So if you choose not to use it, my experience is things will will drift in this direction or that. If that sounds appealing, to have at it. Yeah. Um. I, so that as often as I can, I can make statements like for me, but this was a this was mind blowing technology. Was the statement the GM is allowed to, not necessarily the GM must or the GM shall, but is the notion that when this comes up, that is a signal that the GM may. Mm-hmm. Trigger X, Y, Z, that kind of stuff. Mm. And here's why she might or might not want to do that in a particular situation. Mm. But so, yeah, having those kind of mechanisms where we understand where and at what step which roles are being played, right? Mm-hmm. Which includes in part of it pacing. Yeah. Uh, I went so far in Dark as to specify there's the GM. And sometimes the GM plays the house, which is the everybody in the building you're robbing. Right, right. And sometimes they play the inspector, mm-hmm. which is the person who comes along after to investigate the robbery. Sometimes the inspector, the inspection just never occurs. If you do a great job or if the house doesn't want to call the inspector, they don't call the inspector. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is these are multiple roles the GM is playing in addition to the individual characters that the GM is playing. Mm-hmm. And this is tricky because all my old mechanisms for saying that the GM is not an antagonist of the players, the GM plays the antagonist of the characters, mm-hmm. had to be so carefully filigreed, so carefully contoured to make sure that the GM didn't play against the players. Right. But that the GM honestly portrayed the, the enemies in a way that that provided these challenges to mm-hmm. the characters you know what i mean yeah there's always the the porous boundary mm-hmm. between the character i between the 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 gm and the player 
having antagonistic agendas. Yeah. Like in a more competitive game, like uh, in a like a Rune or Aegon or something mm-hmm. like that, versus what I think most people kind of play role playing games to do, which is present fictional antagonism but you're all kind of on board in terms of creating a, an experience together right and then when you have multiple levels of where that antagonism comes from then you start to have all these varying meters of who does what and when and why and how much at once how much at once all yeah. that kind of stuff clearly apocalypse world and how it spells out the basket of GM tasks. Yeah, it's, it's basket very, of GM tasks. It's, yeah. it's basket and how it breaks them down and says, here's a strategy for breaking down that basket yeah. for any game, really. I think is a, is a strong contender for, for, for being a big uh, a big influence on both of us. Um, and, and for what it's worth to me, that, that division is more valuable, not as a division, but the fact that it, the big breakthrough in its bullet list, because I maintain that Vampire has done that for years. Right, yeah. But is that it did it... In a list that I can look at easily during play. That was the yes. really killer app. <laughs> That's the killer. That like, it is one page. Right. right. It is just a, did I do this sentence? Yeah. No, I can though. I'll do it right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I agree with you that I think it's it didn't come out of the blue. It didn't. Right. You know, like Apocalypse World did not just appear fully formed from the game design platonic cave. Right. right? right like right. there is a... 15 to 20 years of that style of game that Vincent encountered and played and reacted against and hacked and modified and did GM-less troop-style versions of and all <laughs> that stuff to get to where he right. ended up. So to say that, that that those elements have not existed before Apocalypse World is clearly nonsense. But as you say, putting them onto one page is a valuable piece of technology. Which is so that how you do it is, is as important as doing it at all right. in, in, in an expressive medium like this. So, yeah. Coming from the other direction, I think non-singular GM'd games recently, I'm trying to think what's really, what's really impacted me. Have you played Night Witches yet? I haven't played Night Witches yet. The, uh, uh, and it's actually what it does that I think is so clever, better than clever, wise, innovative, and, and, and appealing to me, is that the GM right can be broken up by territory. Mm-hmm. Which I've done in D anD D, but not in the way that, uh, or I've done it in World of Darkness for that matter, in, in in Chronicles of World of Darkness. But that it does really neat in Night Witches is that when you move the timeline forward to the, because it has history on its side, mm-hmm. when you move the timeline forward to this front in the war, change GMs, mm-hmm. right? And there's lots of ways. That, I mean, it, it could be like predefined who who's the GM for this area for this region, mm-hmm. or just say who wants to go next. Mm-hmm. But so that everybody kind of can get a shot at it. If you're doing a campaign, it can rove around. And there's a version of it that there's something like that, for example, that I'm that I'm kind of side cooking in the back of my head for a thing that I've been aiming to do in the back half of 2016, which is which is completely geographic, which is that uh, it's a it's it's sort of always never nowish or sort of um, it's not railroady, but it's a it's a super meta map so mm-hmm. that you have paths you can go down and you can back up and go on different adventures, do half of an adventure, back up, do half of another adventure, go back, finish the first one, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But is that this region, this chain of adventures? Sally GMs that. Mm. This chain of adventures over in in the the frozen tundra, that's Doug, mm. right? Um, and when a subplot comes up uh, from one of them, a villain reoccurs from that. If that villain occur comes shows up in the in the blistering desert of Sally's region, mm-hmm. then uh, it will emerge from like Doug's character mm-hmm. has that has this thing that he can play and say ah evidence of blank. 
But that's what that is, is gifting it to Sally. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that there isn't that, that same stress. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if Doug doesn't want to, Doug wants to say, no, I, I have, I don't want to meddle with, I want that NPC to stay there. Mm-hmm. Then he just doesn't, he doesn't bequeath it. And then it doesn't come up. And it's a very, you know, pulpy Tomb Raider, Indiana Jones kind of a place. So some of these appearances and disappearances and, and villains coming and going and stuff feels, I think, a little more organic. Mm-hmm. But that's an example to me of, of and that's a post-Night Witch's uh, development for me in terms of the idea of, of, of having the GM have their, their turf. I've seen campaigns where this GM runs the combats and this GM runs the dialogue. So this sure, GM does yeah, the mystery yeah. and this GM does, the, yeah. This GM runs the werewolves, this GM mm-hmm. runs the vampires, whatever it is. Um, but making it, what it is to me is that mechanizing it so that there are structures where how the players introduce antagonism to mm-hmm. each other because this is the game that I've talked about before that may or may not be GMless. Right, right. And right now what the thing is is that it's a roving kind of GM and, and that whole job, all the players can do things where they can introduce threats and dangers and stuff. Um, but the, what makes it GM GM'd at all is that there are certain decisions that fall back to the GM for the region we're in. Right. You're just splitting up who, where, where that buck stops as yeah. we talked about. So it's a, in this case, it's a matter of, yeah. Fictional who, geography. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Who cuts, who, who slices the cake yeah. and then who decides which pieces goes to who. So thinking of, of some games that have impacted me recently, I think playing The Quiet Year oh, was yeah. really super um, interesting. Also, you know, it, it is it is called a, a map-making game, I believe. It does mm-hmm. not use the, the RPG or the story game label for itself. And that is, you know, GM-less, like really GM-less. There's nothing really recognizable as a traditional singular GM, even package of responsibilities. Right. Um so it's almost more of a board game in that regard where all the players kind of have the same access to all information and the same tools at their disposal to affect the map as they draw it and make decisions about the community and bring in resources and all that stuff. Right. But the the cards are where the GM stuff lives in, mm-hmm. in my, in how I kind of think about it. Like that's where the pressure comes from to make new decisions where things come out of left field where new influences enter the the fiction right which can be very light the fiction can be very minuscule in in quiet year or it can be very deep it kind of depends on the players and how invested they get in the community but in a way similar to how every time like every time i run inspectors there's a certain tone to it because it's me running it and it's what i'm interested in seeing in that game right similarly i think every time the quiet year is played it has a certain tone and a certain direction it goes from the deck of cards because mm-hmm. that's what avery was interested in seeing in that game right that's where the cards came from and that's how the game goes those cards could be so broad and so um without a common theme or without mm-hmm. you know motif even or anything they, as they to could... not give the game a, a a kind of recurring cogency right but they're so well written Mm-hmm. such that or, or designed really so that this one makes sense with almost any other I mean, really probably every other card i've just haven't played every permutation of the game mm-hmm. but that the cards interact in ways that ask certain kind of recurring questions and are on certain theme and topic without necessarily yeah. having a finite number of i mean it's yeah it's it's, it's executed so well mm-hmm. that the game despite being very broad like you say it could have a lot or very little kind of narrative to it mm-hmm. as the depending on what the players are bringing out, how they're implementing and, and interpreting the cards. Mm. But I think that's part of what also makes it feel like it's a game rather than a particular, like three or four stories in a game package. Mm-hmm. It really is 
you know, it's, it's approaching infinity without being bland. And it has the, the, and the pacing again, that, that you could expect a GM to right. administer right. is contained in the card play, both mechanically in that it ends at a certain time, depending on how the cards go. But also every time I've played, it has that sense of when things happen, they happen at the right time. Mm-hmm. Like it feels right that this particular influence in this season comes in and that's one of those one of those things where once everyone is oriented together on the same page going in the same direction you know with the 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 arc of the story and all that stuff how any influence is going to feel like the right one Mm -hmm. it, it does that really reliably where you get a thing and it's like oh of course that happens right and that could be any card in the deck at a certain point right and you know, apart from drawing off the notion of space and the very particular interpretation of time, the seasons and such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah very, very. So really well crafted, yeah. great bundle of influences that is not, that you don't see a lot or that I have not seen a lot in games. And then another game I want to mention, which is uh, kind of unfair on my part because it's unpublished, but has been really interesting um, and influential on me, is a game called uh, Trouble for Hire, which is. As I say, unpublished, it's by Kevin Allen Jr., who did uh, Primitive and Sweet Agatha, which is the two-player kind of very high-concept investigation game where you cut up a booklet of photos to find clues. And Anyway, he's great. He's a great designer, friend of mine, which is why I've seen this game, because he sent it to me. Uh, I'm not sure what its kind of status is in terms of ever being released or anything, but it's a 70s road movie game where... You have a, um, everyone has a different kind of role that is described by a, a card that you have. And it's all kind of has a playset kind of format, kind of like Fiasco. So if you're playing the, 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 the kind of basic one that, he, that that's the, the core kind of, here, play the game. is this very straightforward scenario where you have kind of like a hero and his side, may not really hero, a 70s hero. But anyway, so there's like a character and he's already described um, for you. And then there's like a sidekick. Hmm. Um, and then there's, you know, a couple of goons that are after him and all this kind of stuff. One of, So like someone has the card and they're playing the hero. Someone has a card and they're playing the sidekick. And then like someone has a card and they're playing the editor. And their job is to do things like describe you know, describe scene framing and right. cut scenes and do stuff like that. Nice. And someone else has a card and they're, uh, they're the world. So they get to like describe like other stuff in the world, the people at the gas station, the, you know, the, why the bridge is out, that kind of stuff. I'm not sure if there's literally a director or not. Um, there might be, but so, so the, the roles are, are split up, not just, not just here are specific characters and here are more abstract things, but they happen at the same time. And you have the same kind of, mechanical ability to affect the pacing of the game and it's mostly about pacing the resolution basically advances a a track to to get to the end uh you know at the time you want to get to the end or not everyone has like a special power that they can use to do stuff and as characters enter and exit the game you can change roles and between scenes you can change roles so like if you're playing the sidekick and then you use their power then you might switch with me and now you're the editor and now i'm playing the sidekick so the character stays the same, but the players end up revolving around yeah. kind of by choice. It's not enforced uh, necessarily except by you choosing to do the thing that then triggers you changing. Okay. Um, and they're not all necessarily present in every scene. If you're only playing with four players, there's like three or four roles that aren't going to be played, but maybe you'll take one of those. So maybe, oh, oh, I see. So maybe the, the sidekick goes out of play and no one's 
able to use that psychic power anymore, even though he's still in the game. Right. And then they become the world or whatever. And now in the narrative of the game, the world starts to matter more because someone's playing it. Right. Where before it was just background. So Kevin's done a really great job of conceptualizing all the different aspects of what you could potentially have say over in this kind of road movie uh, scenery hopping kind of kind of situation and then splitting them differently so that it changes not only based on the specific game you're playing but the interests of the players the speed at which they are interacting with each other and what they want to see come right. out at the end and also just the idea of like okay i'm done i did all the things i can do with this character what happens if i play that one but it's not necessarily a character it's the the different roles Speaking of uh, unreleased games, <laughs> uh, I just got back from Metatopia, and I played Atlas Reckoning, mm -hmm. the giant robots versus giant monsters game. Yes, and the because it was a, a, a playtest um, and the designer was present, it wasn't. I mean, it was GMless, but the the designer wasn't there in a GM role. It was there? Uh, uh, he was there as a facilitator. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of like we talked about last time. With, yeah. with when you end up not running but administering a little right, bit. Right. And I'm so I'm projecting a little bit what it would be like to to have it without a G, without with, without a knowledgeable GM present to play it for the first time. Sure, yeah. But that also that the game and the questions that the designers put into it asks such great questions, and there's so it's full of questions all over the place, uh, uh, and checks things like did your answer do this to the character, or do that to the character, did you reveal something you regret, did you gain power over someone, these kind of things. So there are all these ways that the questions intersect with the answers that the game, not unlike the deck in Quiet Year, is doing most of the GMing, although the playing of the monster is done kind of randomly by the deck of cards. And so it's distributed, but it's it feels almost more GMless to me than a lot of games that we call GMless. And I don't say that as a qualitative, like a value judgment, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that it's not, it's not roving in the same way. We all have the same power to frame scenes between the monster fights. And it has a rhythm to it, right? There's a monster fight and then... A bunch of stress scenes where we heal up and learn stuff and reveal things about our characters and find out why we fight and why we don't fight or whatever. And then we find another monster and that creates this framing mm -hmm. structure to it. But when you frame a scene, you can say who's in it and, th and then the players interact. And so rather than being as goal-directed as sometimes those scenes can be, um, it's more about place and character, which totally is kind of right in my where my heart lives is the intersection <laughs> of people and places fictionally. Yeah. Um, but then says things like, so, you know, these are the questions that are on the table by the place. Um, and then these, depending on what, how the questions get answered, they determine what you, how the character changes across the bottom of the sheet as a list of, if this happened, then your character heals this much stress or does, or heals as much stress and draws a card or whatever. And those are different based on playbook essentially, but it's, it, it benefits hugely uh, from the designer's laser focus, from Strasch's laser focus on knowing not just a genre, but the specific kind of subject matter and motif and theme, mm -hmm. while still not defining the world. So the players can still build the world at the beginning of a campaign without pre-describing exactly an arc. Because you can play, sure. some, you can start in the middle and still play, but you have a series of monsters that you fight. Mm -hmm. You can mix up those monsters a little bit and change some of this and that. So what, what it was is it struck me as landing right between, or not right between, but interacting with things like fiasco, aspects of some of the uh, of monster hearts in the way that the players can interact with each other, and uh, some of the dramatic inevitability without dramatic powerlessness of something like Montsegur, which I can't mm -hmm. say correctly. But, um, and, that's a, and, and this is sort of what, although A&N Always Ever Now is obviously very GM-driven or GM-regulated, 
uh, it needs that facilitation to, to really play. But it's that thing where narrative can project or the what we understand of, of, of arc can carry GMless games through. The story has a momentum that helps us all do that. And I think that momentum can be prescribed, it can be pre-written, this is a story right. about, yeah. or it can be in the form of Quiet Year, where, where Quiet Year's time is an, is an element that the mm-hmm. four seasons are inexorable, mm-hmm. that it can't be stopped. Um, and the fact that the end of that game is such, an, is such a fashion that this is how the game will end. Yeah. If you have questions or comments for us about the Design Games Podcast, come check out our Google Plus community. You can just search for Design Games Podcast on Google Plus. There's also a link at designgamespodcast.com. Sometimes our conversations wander a bit afield, and so we package them as backer-only special episodes for our Patreon backers and supporters at patreon.com. To hear these episodes for yourself, visit patreon.com slash ndpauletta or patreon.com slash wordwill. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...